Welcome to this late hour. A look at the world through the lens of scripture. I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. What if I told you that Noah's Ark had been found? Not only found, but was in the mountains of Ararat in eastern Turkey near the Iranian border. So large it could be seen from space. Surely by now you're saying, well, I would have heard of that. Maybe, but maybe not. The place we will be discussing today is known as the Drupanar site, a large boat-shaped formation that was first photographed in the 1950s, later studied by many different people of faith along with scientific experts. Ron Wyatt is the most notable person of faith in relation to the findings as he has claimed for years up until the time of his death in 1999, that this site was indeed the buried remains of Noah's Ark. These claims have been met with much skepticism over the years, the formation dismissed as a geological oddity. But what if Mr. Wyatt was right? What if this really is what is left of Noah's Ark? On today's program, I'm going to be interviewing the director of Discovered Media, Andrew Jones, who has been living in Turkey right near the Drupaner site, continuing efforts to study and confirm the formation as authentic. While this episode is not specifically part of the Genesis Problem series, it does directly tie into it. The reasons for this are threefold. First, our understanding of Genesis directly impacts our view of the last days we find ourselves living in. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 37-39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And then they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. If we dismiss the flood account as myth or legend, then Jesus is comparing his second coming to something that never happened. That is more than a little problematic. If we take Christ at his word, also adopting his worldview, we should expect to find things that align with what I'll call our forgotten history. We learn three important things from the flood account. God is patient, God is merciful, and God will judge. Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 3.20, When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Also, 2 Peter 3, 5-9. It escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. As we see in these teachings from the Apostle Peter, God is patient and desires for none to perish. We also learn that there will come a time when his patience runs out. Let us not make light of the flood account, for another judgment is coming, and it may well be that God's patience is waning. Secondly, it is our responsibility as faithful Christians to vet those who would put out such claims so that the witness of the church is kept strong. Peter also warns us of the rise of false teachers who in their greed will exploit you with false words. From 2 Peter 2.3 
While we cannot know the heart and motives of Ron Wyatt, we can look at this finding and judge it according to the scriptures. I think that you'll find as I discuss these matters with Andrew Jones today, the evidence is not only compelling, but aligns with scripture. As for Mr. Wyatt's motives, I'll leave that up to the listener to decide. Third, God has been revealing incredible treasures of the faith for the last few decades, including this one. I think it is of the utmost importance as we continue in our posture of watchfulness that we see what God has been doing around the world. There are multiple magnificent findings of our faith that are going unnoticed or being dismissed. It is my hope to not only highlight these findings, as I will be doing today, but to consider the implications of why God is choosing to reveal these things now in this late hour. Now, let's listen into the first part of my two-part interview with Andrew Jones of Discovered Media. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Uh, I've got a, a great guest today, Andrew Jones of Discovered Media. Andrew, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you. It's great to have you. So uh, for those who don't know uh, anything about Discovered Media, anything about Andrew Jones, uh, who is Andrew Jones? Ah, yeah. Well, I'm just a regular guy. <laughs> I am currently, though, living in the country of Turkey here in um we're uh, in Eastern Turkey. I'm in Eastern Turkey at this point, uh, but I do travel a lot um, and I do tours across the Middle East when uh, there's not a pandemic. And um, but uh, let's see, I was uh, uh, born in the Philippines. My dad's uh, he was in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he was an American and my mom was a Filipino. And that's where they met uh, at the U.S. Air Force Base there. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've just uh, been interested in archaeology all my life, so here I am over here living among the, uh, the biblical uh, uh, lands mentioned you know, in the Bible. Fantastic. That's wonderful. So you actually live there in Turkey? Yeah, I have a residency here, um, but uh, this is something kind of new for me. Uh, I, I did it right after the pandemic started, so I've been here a little over a year and a half, um, and my friend here who... Um, was kind enough to, uh, he actually built a studio apartment for me. And we're about uh, 30 minutes from the uh, the uh, site we'll be talking today that uh, Ron White and others believe to be the uh, buried remains of Noah's Ark. And so um, I am living at the base of Mount Ararat. Wow, that's pretty cool. I didn't realize you were so yeah. close. Yeah, I see it. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, 10 miles away, but it's such a huge mountain. You see it outside your window. It's, just, it's the tallest mountain in Turkey. So it's just sitting right there. That's a fantastic view. That's great. Yes, yes. So are you essentially the director uh, or the administrator or what is your actual title? Because you run Discovered Media. Is that right? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> it might sound like a big group, but it's not. It's, um, uh, you know, we have some locals who help us. And then we have some volunteers, you know, depending on the project, who would either edit videos for us or, uh, you know, help promote uh, online uh, our media. But usually uh, it's a one-man show. So okay, uh, we I do the uh, tours, I do the planning. Uh, uh, you know, I do bring in um, 
different contractors depending on the budget for uh, uh, filming. Uh, so it was sometimes we'll have a camera guy come over from the U.S. Uh, to help. But otherwise, um, I do a lot of vlogging myself. Um, so, yeah, it's just a small little group. Well, I have been so impressed with the footage you've been getting at some of these locations. Just some incredible sweeping cinematic shots uh, through the drone footage and everything. It's been really breathtaking. Uh, so for oh, those who love, don't, well, go ahead. We love using the drone. So <laughs> yeah, it's always great to get those aerial shots. Yeah, it's been it's been fantastic to watch those. Uh, so um, give a little explanation here to the audience. What is Discovered Media and what's its purpose? Uh, yeah, so um, I started it uh, based on uh, my interest in archaeology. Uh, at first, I was, it was like a personal interest, and I, I went overseas on some archaeological digs in Israel. And, um, and I was the head of the media for the Wyatt Archaeological Research's um, digs in Jerusalem from 2003 to 2006. I've always had an interest in cameras and um, technology, and uh, so co- you know, combining that with doing archaeology and recording, and then coming back home and showing my friends and family, that kind of uh, blossomed into something larger where people wanted me to do lectures and meetings, and you know, um, for home groups and churches. Um, and so uh, I started uh, wanting to do. Pre- you know, to create uh, better quality media. And then I started a YouTube channel and, um, and yeah, so I had an outlet to put uh, the media out there. And so I started discovering media as a, a way to share uh, my interest in um, archaeology and specifically biblical archaeology and the uh, trips and exploration over here that we do. And uh, so its main purpose, though, is to uh, get people familiar with these sites who usually wouldn't um, leave their home or, or leave their country. And so we, sure. uh, like, to, we like to do these short uh, little videos kind of showing what it's like to be on site and, and to see these places that you hear about in the Bible or maybe in, even in the news, but you're not able to come over. So that's kind of our, our main goal is to share online uh, these uh, video clips you have definitely filmed some notable areas. What are some of those that you have filmed uh, that you could just explain to the audience? Yes. Yeah, so um, I think uh, the best example is the site in Saudi Arabia, uh, Jebel al-Laz, um, also known uh, as Jebel Makla, uh, that range of mountains in the uh, northwest part of Saudi. It's kind of uh, a remote area, but uh, that was the ancient land of Midian. And so uh, it is in this area that some believe uh, the real Mount Sinai was located. And so back in 2016, um, before they were issuing tourist visas, which they started in September of 2019, but back in 16, uh, you had to get a business visa, which was quite difficult. And at that time, a friend uh, knew one of the Saudi royal princes, and we were able to get a business invite through the, one of this guy's companies. And so a small group of us went over um, and thankfully they give you a five-year visa, multi-entry. And so I was able to go back multiple times. Um, I've been back so far, like 20 some times to Saudi Arabia, um, investigating the sites, documenting them, um, doing tours. And uh, uh, we were able to do some of the first drone footage from the summit of what um, is known as the real Mount Sinai. And also uh, another site uh, on the other side of the mountain range is this giant split rock. 
that uh, Jim and Penny Caldwell, who were who were Americans working in the oil industry back in the 90s, they discovered that site. And it, it looks to be the probable rock of Horeb uh, that's mentioned in the Bible that Moses uh, struck and the water came out at Rephardim. Right. And so we were able to uh, do some really uh, cinematic drone footage there, uh, especially during the uh, uh, golden hour, they call it, like two hours before sunset. And um, so it's been a lot of fun doing that there. And we have a lot of stories about flying the drone because back then it was, it was kind of illegal to fly a drone. Now it's not. But uh, so we had some uh, fun experiences in Saudi doing that. Um, and then also uh, here in Turkey, we've uh, used um, we've filmed the Durupanar, um site that we'll be talking about today, I believe. Um, and this is the, the site that many believe to be the buried remains of Noah's Ark. And so uh, these are some of the areas that uh, we have been uh, filming. Now, you had mentioned uh, working with uh, the Wyatt Archaeological uh, Organization, something along those lines. Yeah, yes. And so, you know, uh, Ron Wyatt, uh, for those who don't know, obviously has played a key part in uncovering a lot of these locations or rediscovering them or however you want to want to put it. But uh, he certainly played a key role in their discovery. And so what is your actual connection to Mr. Wyatt uh, and his organization there? Yes. Yeah, so I first learned of Ron's uh, research and um, you can say claims of discovery back when I was a kid in middle school. I was, um, this was like 1990 or 1991. And so um, what happened, he had um, some group invited him out to Sacramento, California, where I'm from. And um, it was a school night. It was a Thursday night. And my dad told me, he's like, hey, this guy's coming. He's going to do a lecture on archaeology. Uh, I had homework. I was kind of, I probably still am a nerd. So I, I decided to stay home and do my homework. <laughs> But I asked my dad to go attend for me, and he was willing to do that. And, but he came back and said, well, this one man said he's found everything you know, about Sinai, the Red Sea Crossing, Noah's Ark. And so um, he, I, I was interested. Um, so I went and bought his book at a local Christian bookstore. And it was a small little booklet um, titled Discovered Noah's Ark. And after reading that, I thought, oh, no, I have all these questions for this guy because, you know, the book was very brief. Mm-hmm. And so back then, this was before the Internet, you know, the early 90s. So I... Uh, uh, there was no uh, looking up his email or all that type of stuff. So I called 411, which is, um, for those who don't know, that's how you, you look at people's information if they're listed in the phone book. And so I got the operator and they asked what city. I said, Madison, Tennessee. And I gave the person's name, uh, you know, Ron Wyatt. And and then they found a phone number for a Ron Wyatt. And so I called the person and I called the number and it was Ron. He actually picked up and he uh, was nice, but he had just gotten back from the Middle East. Like he was walking in the door. <laughs> I had called him. Oh, wow. And he said, yeah, he's like, hey, call me back in a couple of days. I'll be willing to answer your questions. And so, yeah, and in fact, that week I called him a couple of times. Um, and then even after that, I would call and talk for hours. Um, back then, you didn't have unlimited no, like there was no cell um, phones back then or they were like huge bricks. So most people didn't have one. And so like for long distance phone calls, you were charged. <laughs> and right. so my parents got the phone bill. They're like, who are you calling in Tennessee for all these hours? Um, but uh, so I finally invited him out to Sacramento to hold some meetings in 1996 and 1997. And then um, he invited me on one of his trips in 97 uh, to the pyramids. He was going to do some research to uncover a hidden chamber he thought he had discovered. But uh, sadly, they had a big terrorist attack there. 
and his contact in the government was super busy dealing with that issue. And so he canceled his trip. And instead, I went to uh, Noah's Ark for the first time with a friend. So in 1997, uh, we went to Turkey, uh, spent a week over here. And, um, and then sadly, Ron had passed away um, in 1999. Um, but uh, after that, uh, his organization got a permit to do some excavations in Jerusalem um, in the Garden Tomb area, uh, which is kind of known as the Protestant site for uh, where Christ was uh, buried. And, um, and so we were, uh, uh, a whole group of us went over with the, his organization uh, that Richard Reeves um, was uh, the president of, and he still is. But uh, they uh, did excavations there for a number of years from, I believe, 2003 to 2007, and then again in 2011. So from 2003 to six, I was head of the media, and I had a group of uh, videographers and photographers working under me. And we uh, documented the, the digs and uh, did interviews. Um, and that was kind of our role in um, that. Uh, but so just more of a volunteer thing and, um, and knowing him, talking to him on the phone a lot. I, I used to, you know, as I mentioned, spend hours just asking lots of questions. Um, and, and his uh, wife, um, Mary Nell, I used to uh, call her a lot when Ron was at the hospital working his day job. Uh, I would call and she would pick up and I would ask her all, all these questions. But, you know, I did that with others, too, involved in his research. I would also like talk to David Fazold, who was um, at one point working with Ron on the Noah's Ark discovery. And so it, it, for me, it was just uh, super interesting. I want to get all the information I could. And that kind of also was the reason why I went overseas uh, finally and just started doing these type of trips to uh, document the sites, investigate them. And so, yeah. So as you got to know Ron and spend all this time speaking with him and his wife and working with him a little and having him at conferences, uh, what's your impression of Ron? Because though there are those who would say Ron essentially was a fraud. They've dismissed most, if not all, of his claims or his findings uh, as irrelevant, given the fact they believe he's a fraud. So how do you respond to, to those critics out there who would come, come at you with those types of claims? Well, first, on a personal level, you know, so I, I, I was a kid in high school and, um, you know, college, and um, I, I mainly dealt with, dealt with him on the phone, talked to him. But, you know, there's a, a, other times where, you know, he came out to Sacramento, the twi- you know, the, those two times, and then I would watch videos of his other meetings. And I had uh, other friends who had actually gone on tours or expeditions with him. Um, so I had some really good friends who knew him more on a personal level than I did. But from what I saw, um, I, I remember for one thing, he was super um, uh, humble, just uh, never talking about himself, uh, like pumping himself up like, hey, look what I did. It was always about uh, the, you know, the, the work itself, the, the Bible itself. Um, and, and he always mentioned, you know, you got to use this to win souls for Christ. So he was all about uh, winning souls for the kingdom. And I remember one time at a potluck, uh, he had come out to Sacramento and we had like a luncheon before his meeting and we had all these people in the room and someone had brought up something about like a sporting event or a, 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 some, um, I think it was a basketball player and he didn't know who the person was a pretty famous basketball player, but um, he only like in the, like dealing with him on a one-to-one uh, basis, he, he would only talk about uh, the Bible and these, uh, you know, biblical archaeology. Uh, he didn't care about sports or archaeology. I mean, uh, or about um, politics or um, entertainment. 
Um, everything in his life was focused in on this uh, work that he believed, you know, God called him to do. And so that was quite interesting because, you know, most people, you know, they, they usually, uh, you can engage them and as you mentioned something like politics and you can start a big argument or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but for him, it was all about um, the, the work and winning souls for Christ. And so um, uh, in regards to people who, uh, you know, if someone wants to disagree with his interpretation of the data from these sites, you know, that's fine. But then to, you know, accuse someone of being a fraud, you know, that's a, a different story. He, I never saw any evidence of that, like you, like financial fraud or, you know, he, he paid for his own trips usually, uh, you know, he would take his own time off of work and go do these, you know, multiple research trips over in the Middle East and, you know, risk his own life. So, uh, yeah. And he lived in a humble home. I, I've seen photos of his, the first home that he was in in the, you know, the late 80s and then the current home that, um, you know, we're, that uh, his widow still has when he had passed away in 1999. But I mean, it's, it's not like a mansion or something you think of like a televangelist having. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't a money thing for him. He wasn't out to take people's money. Um, so that, you know, that is definitely, um, I think the key word would be humble. You know, he's a humble person, you know, very, very humble and God-fearing. And one of the things I thought about with Ron, because I never knew Ron other than just what I've seen of his books and videos and things. Uh, you know, I think about that scripture, you shall know them by their fruit. And the more that these sites are being combed over and looked at, and, and now that with the advanced technology, uh, well, I mean, they seem pretty, pretty accurate and pretty genuine to me. Uh, you know, so... I can't speak to Ron personally. I didn't know his motives because I can't read people's motives. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but just from what I'm seeing on the outset, uh, certainly there's a lot of encouragement knowing that the more digging we're doing, uh, the more it seems these are being substantiated. From what I uh, remember, um, and you, know, you can also watch his old videos on YouTube from his meetings and his uh, questions and answer sessions after the meetings. Um, and you can see his uh, focus was everything about the Bible. And so for someone who is um, going after like trying to steal people's money or make a name for themselves, usually uh, they'll slip up and you'll um, know right away uh, that uh, they just want your money or they're just talking about themselves only. And so mm-hmm. that was not the case with him. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, the stuff with uh, Saudi Arabia, you know, as you well know, and uh, what we call the real Mount Sinai. Uh, you know, back before there were fences and uh, back before you could go and take a tour. I mean, he was there with his sons. And if I'm not mistaken, he was detained for a good long while with his sons for trespassing or whatever the charges were. But uh, I mean, he was definitely out risking himself to, you know, look at these areas. Yeah. In fact, I remember uh, reading, you can read this in his book, uh, but the I think it's in this two-hour film, too, that some, some YouTube channels still have up But um, about Noah's Ark. Uh, but his first trip to this area of Turkey where I'm at, um, you know, him and his, this was his first trip overseas. And he had his two teenage sons with him. And they were almost chased out of town. I mean, they, they fled their hotel because a group of um, bad characters were um, storming the uh you know, going up the stairs, making a loud racket and banging on their doors, trying to break in. And so they fled for their lives. They, they had actually had to tie sheets together like a movie. And because they, they were at like the second or third floor and they had to drop down on another um, 
roof um, right below them and then from there dropped down to the street level and then they ran to the police. And then, you know, um, he had a very interesting life, um, but uh, it wasn't like something he was like, like he uh, wanted, you know, like he was yeah. trying to get in trouble or something. Um, and, the, and the thing about Saudi Arabia, um, you know, he tried for years to cross over the, uh, you know, get a, a visa to go investigate this mountain that because, you know, he believed he had found the Red Sea crossing. And so after that, he started looking for a site that could hold the Israelites, you know, the one to two million people um, and where they would encamp in front of the mountain. He, you know, looked at the maps they had back then. You know, there's no Google Earth back then, but he had some um, topographical maps and flight maps. And from that, he he chose uh, this Jebel Allah's area that had a big uh, valley uh, or a big plain in front of it on the east side. And it was like the only mountain that fit. But, you know, he was he couldn't get over there because um saudi is uh, you know at the time was a closed country no tourist visas and you could only go on a business visa or uh, on a hajj you know a pilgrimage to mecca and so he uh finally decided he would sneak across the border and so him and his sons uh did and you know yeah they they got caught coming back um trying to get back to jordan and uh they were arrested and sadly the reason why they were detained for so long was because an associate of his who he had trusted and um, you know, told about his trip before he left. He had told his family and then this one other guy and this guy um, out of um, jealousy or something um, evil. But he called the uh, Saudi embassy and said that there was these guys, you know, who were trying to sneak in and out of the country. And they were actually Israeli spies, um, his associate claimed. And so that's kind of why the Saudis held them for so long mm. um, to figure out who they were. You know, so he was in prison there for um I think 70 some days, 73 days, 75 days, but um, it was, you know, a long time. Yeah. And you think at that point, if he, you know, were just a glory hound, he would have just thrown in the towel and walked away, but that's not the case. So I think that speaks to his character. (laughs) Correct. Very true. Well, so you were mentioning that, you know, you live there right inside of the mountain, uh, Mount Ararat, and uh, that you've been working on this, uh, now, please help me with this. It's the Drupanar. Is that right? Yes. Drupanar. Which is the name Drupanar. of the, the pilot who first photographed the site. Is that right? Uh, no, he was the Turkish army captain who worked in the mapping division. Um, and he was making the maps for this region. But, you know, over in their main office in Ankara, the capital. And so he was looking, he was looking at these photographs that were taken by someone else, you know, another Turkish pilot. And so he was the one who spotted, though, the boat uh, formation in these old photos. Um, and it was back in uh, 1959. That's when he, um, this person first saw it, uh, Ilhan Durupanar. Was he one of the few that went back and had did done the little excavation with blowing out the part of it with the dynamite? Yeah. So what happened, um, he d- discovered on September 11th, um, interesting date, uh, 1959, uh, and then about a week later, it hit the Turkish news, uh, and then it got picked up by the international news the next month in October of 1959. Uh, and they, um, the Turkish government released the one photograph that showed the boat formation from you know high up uh, you know, in the air. Uh, so uh, that got in, uh, a group interested from America, um, and so an evangelist named George Vandeman and um, an archaeologist, a, a reporter. And a couple, a businessman, and a couple others. Um, I think a professor of um, from Ohio State University who um, was um, an expert in photogrammetry. 
they all uh, went over to Turkey and then um, met up with the Turkish military and got permission to go find this site that they, you know, saw from the air. And they went out there on the ground, including uh, Captain uh, Drupanar, and they finally found the site. And for the brief amount of time they were there, uh, you know, they're walking on the very top of it. And so they see the boat formation in the, uh, the mud flow. And they realize that the, there was no, you know, what they thought would be like the ark sticking up out of the ground. You know, instead they see just the top boat um, formation uh, with grass growing on the top. And, and so they decided to use some dynamite, you know, definitely not an archaeological tool. Two or three places they, they, they blew holes in the side trying to see what was under the ground. And in their mind, it was just uh, rocks and dirt. And so they all left uh, pretty disappointed, except for one guy thought they were pre- that they were too negative. That was um, Professor Brandenburg from Ohio State University. And he believed that still it was impossible for a natural um, uh, process, a, a natural process to create that type of boat um, formation. But at any rate, uh, that was uh, in 1960. And so Life Magazine published uh, an article about the expedition showed photographs. Uh, this was the September 5th, uh, 1960 issue. And that's when Ron Wyatt first heard about it. Um, he saw that uh, magazine uh, article. And then uh, the year later, a year later, uh, Turkish, a famous Turkish photographer, Ara Guler, who has um, passed away, but he uh, was hired uh, by the Turkish government to go document the site better. And they got him in a private uh, little you know, airplane and he flew at a lower altitude and was able to take a lot better photographs of the site um, from the air. And so then uh, the next decade in the late 1970s, Ron Wyatt finally got over there with his sons. Um, and then from the 70s until the 90s, Ron uh, was involved in his research at the site along with others. And it was kind of the, Ron's um, push to uh, get others to come work at the site and everyone you know, in the news talking about it, the 80s especially that got the site um, on the map. You know, everyone was talking about it that whole decade. And um, so that's kind of where it was left off when uh, Ron passed away in 1999. Now you've been kind of picking up the mantle, if you will, there at the site. So what kind of work are you doing there uh, in regards to testing and, and uh, furthering the work he was doing? Ah, so yeah. So besides doing media documentation and um, you know stuff associated with that, uh, we are also trying to uh, pursue scientific work with the Turkish scientists um, who we have partnered with who are interested in the site. And so uh, some of the things that we are trying to accomplish, uh, whether it'll be this year or next year, depend on funding, but uh, the Turks would like to do complete geophysical surveys. So geophysical surveys uh, you know, that involves uh, things where you can uh, uh, see below the ground using different types of technologies like uh, ground penetrating radar, ERT, which is also known as resistivity, which uses electricity to map uh, features below the ground, uh, magnetometry, which uses the Earth's uh, magnetic field to, to also, again, map um, features below the ground. So these are different tools that archaeologists and geologists use. And so they would like to do a complete scan of the site with um, as many of these modern techniques as possible and also uh, do a core drilling survey. And so core drilling is something where they uh, have a little machine that will uh, take core samples. So three to four inches in diameter and will drill into the ground uh, and pull out these samples. And they'll tell uh, the geologists and archaeologists, you know, what's uh, 
what's below the ground without doing a full-scale excavation. And so these are some of the things that we are hoping to accomplish uh, this year or next year. So they're definitely retiring the dynamite, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, yes, for sure. Uh, for a good reason. <laughs> right. Well, so, so you're there and you're, you're kind of leading the way on some of these things. Uh, you know, I've been following this site for a long time uh, with, you know, obviously strong feelings about this being almost certainly the, the true resting place of Noah's Ark. On the podcast recently, I've been discussing uh, the importance of a literal view of the book of Genesis in relation to the Christian worldview. And so just, you know, from, I want to hear kind of your standpoint on this and your opinion, if this site is indeed Noah's Ark, how significant is that to the church and frankly, just to the world in general? Oh, I think very significant because that is a major story um, early on in the Bible that most people discount and say is a fable. And so thus they throw out the whole Bible. And so obviously if you're a, a person of faith, uh, you know, by faith, we believe the flood happened and that there was an ark and, you know, Noah and his family were saved. But um, outside of those who um, have this belief, you know, most people in the world will say, oh, that's just a, a, a story, you know, from ancient times that uh, people made up, you know, maybe there's mm-hmm. a local flood or something, but this global flood that um, destroyed the earth and only eight survivors, you know, that's just something uh, you can't, uh, they can't fathom. So like, there's no evidence for it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and especially with the evolution involved, uh, you know, they believe things happen over a long period of time, um, with slow processes in geology and that not there's no evidence for this global catastrophe that would destroy the whole earth. So finding something like Noah's Ark, which is a key piece of the story uh, would uh, go a long ways. And I I believe helping people who are searching for truth, accept a biblical uh, account. And obviously there are those who, even as Christ said, you know, if you, if you were to raise someone from the dead, they would still not believe in him. And they, mm-hmm. he did, you know, he raised Lazarus and then the Pharisees try to kill Lazarus too. Mm-hmm. So even um, something like as big as that miracle happening, uh, it won't convince everyone in the world. So, um, but there are those who are searching and they do uh, need physical proof uh, like doubting Thomas, who after Christ was risen, he wanted to see the uh, nail um, wounds, the prints in Christ's hands and side with a spear um, where he was pierced. And so uh, you're going to find people today who need stuff from biblical archaeology, from creation science, uh, scientific backgrounds where the data, they need to see the actual data to believe in the story. And I think uh, God knows that and he's willing to provide that. And so Noah's Ark being discovered would would uh, be a huge discovery um, and uh, help not just those of us of faith to use it as a tool, because then we could take this and um, uh, show people the truth of the Bible, but also those who are searching on their own and, and need this physical evidence, it would be a major, um, uh, be a major benefit to them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting with this uh, Drupaner site, this Noah's Ark site, you know, it, it comes into the news every decade or so and then it's dismissed yeah. it comes in the news and then it's dismissed and yeah. i i found it interesting you know how regardless of that fact that pattern people keep coming to it and being drawn to it saying no there's something more going on here and so with all the work you've done 
and, you know, talking with Ron, being at the site, filming the site, being involved in some of the push for testing. What would you say are the top five points of evidence you would give in support of this being the literal remains of Noah's legendary Ark? I think, uh, obviously, when you, you have to go to the Bible, because uh, that's where uh, it describes, uh, you know, the Ark and also, you know, tells the story. And so from the biblical account, um, it says that Noah's Ark landed in the mountains of Ararat. Um, and so if you look at that word Ararat, number one, um, it, it comes from uh, the name Urartu, which was an ancient kingdom that uh, covered this area of Turkey and parts of Iran and Armenia. And um, uh, but the, the key phrase there is mountains, plural. And so basically what it's saying in the Bible is that uh, Noah's Ark landed in the mountains of this kingdom of Uartu. It would be like me saying like the Ark landed in the mountains of Colorado in America or the mountains of Canada. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not a specific mountain, just saying the mountainous region of this country. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the key things about this site is, is definitely in the mountains of Uartu around us you find these archaeological sites of Urartu, their castles, their, um, their homes, their settlements and uh, graves. And so it's all around um, where this is. So we know we're in, in, the, in the right location. And then the, the second thing I think is the shape. Um, it's not a triangle. It's not a square. It's a boat. And now some will say that uh, based on the word arc in Genesis, that has to be a rectangular barge, but that's, um, you know, that's them, um, imposing their views on the biblical text. The, the text does not say that. Uh, the text only gives the dimensions, uh, but not the shape of it. And so just based on the seaworthiness of, of, of ships uh, in, in a storm, um, everyone agrees that uh, a ship is better than a barge out in the, the big ocean with a storm. And so these barges that they talk about are actually only used on the, in the coastal areas and in the harbors, and they're not uh, used out in the middle of the ocean. Uh, so the, the, the boat formation, the, this, the shape itself, you know, that's what got the attention of the people back in the 1960s because it looked like a boat from the air. And so, uh, so that's point number two, I think, is that uh, you have the shape of a boat here. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three is the dimensions. Uh, so what's really fascinating, and I think a key piece of evidence is that this boat formation is exactly 300 royal Egyptian cubits. And the book of Genesis, uh, Moses, who, you know, I believe wrote that, he said that Noah's Ark was 300 cubits long. And um, we uh, we believe that Moses being educated in the Egyptian courts, he would have used the royal Egyptian cubit. Now, on top of that, uh, you can read in like Encyclopedia Britannica and other um, archaeological literature that the uh, Egyptian royal cubit was like the key measurement system used throughout the Middle East at that time, kind of like metrics are today, mm-hmm. the metric system. And so these, uh, if you take 300 royal Egyptian cubits and convert it to uh, our system in America, for example, it comes out to be 515 feet. Now, uh, we had a tour group out here in June, and one of the guys from, who came was from Texas, and he brought a 300-foot-long tape measure because he wanted to physically measure the boat formation because um, you know he heard what ron said and what others but he wanted to do it mm-hmm. himself on the ground and so we filmed him and he measured it out and um, he used the ball his 300 feet and then he, he um uh, redid it again and it you know it was exactly 515 feet long 
Now, you know, that could be a coincidence, but um, for me, that's a key thing is you have this boat formation in the right location. That's exactly the length in the Bible. Uh, now, in regards to the uh, width, uh, uh, it is wider in the middle. So the middle of the boat's 138 feet wide. Uh, but w- there's two possibilities there. Number one, you could say that the boat over time has decayed and uh, splayed out, so fallen apart, um, and thus pushing out the sides and making it a little wider in the middle. Or you could say that that, that measurement, the Bible was the average. You know, it's, it's a boat shape, so the average width um, being uh, the number of cubits given in the Bible. Uh, and then in regards to the height, obviously we would have to excavate the site to see exactly you know, how deep it is. But based on the geophysical survey done by John Larson in 2014, uh, they did resistivity, which uses electricity uh, to measure and uh, map out what's below the ground. Uh, his data shows three main layers below the ground which, you know, you could say, hey, those are the three decks that the book of Genesis, you know, says that Noah's Ark had. But at any rate, when he measured those, uh, the uh, floor to ceiling in between those thick layers, uh, the ERT scans were showing, when you add up those uh, measurements, it it equaled exactly the height given in the Bible. And so uh, you have this, uh, even the geophysical evidence without an excavation of, uh, uh, the measurements for the height, um, you know, matching the biblical account. Uh, so, um, you know, that's uh, point number three. So number four, um, I would say the next thing would be the uh, patterns of metal uh, that Ron and David Fazold and Dr. John Baumgartner found when they used metal detectors on the site. And I think this was done in uh, multiple times, but the first time was 84 or 1985. And these were traditional beach comb metal detectors that you know treasure hunters use, except they had like the highest, uh, the priced ones, the high end models that mm-hmm. can go pretty deep. Um, and so this found uh, they were able to map out a pattern only in the boat formation, not out there in the mud flow around it. And so that suggests that Noah's Ark had metal fittings or metal uh, brackets or nails or something metal used, and not just the gopher wood. Um, and so, again, you would have to ask your, yourself, you know, if this was a natural object, you know, why is there a pattern of metal just inside of this boat formation? And then my last point, and I'll make this quick, is the geophysical scans. Uh, so these are the new ones that were done uh, in 2014 that I mentioned by John Larson. And then again in 2019, uh, we had the Science Channel out here, and they filmed a team from America doing GPR. Uh, GPR is ground penetrating radar. And so they were a, uh, these two types of geophysical survey devices, uh, which can map out and, and peer below the ground. They showed angular structures, uh, parallel lines, uh, different layers um, inside the boat, suggesting uh, that this is not just a random pile of rock and debris and mud, but actually uh, a man-made object. And that's called GPR. Yeah, GPR, uh, ground penetrating radar. And so it's, you can think of it like sonar for a submarine or, um, or like radar using the sky uh, to, you know, when you, uh, for like airports or the military. Uh, so uh, this instead, it's uh, they point it the other way. They point it into the ground. Um, and um, it's like a simple way to say it. But um, this uh, bounce off uh, electromagnetic signals. You know, they shoot thousands of them a second into the ground. And then the software and the computer can map out um, the different densities of what's below the ground. And so then that can show a shape or a, a feature or a layer 
Uh, it could right. be a rock. It could, you know, it could be a, a house or you know, something, you know, or a wall or you know, something that's buried. Okay. Well, those, that's pretty good, uh, pretty strong points of evidence. So let me make sure I can, I have them all. I'm going to review them with you here. So we have the, the, the shape is in the, the, the correct region. If we look at the biblical text, mm-hmm. it is uh, to the same length of the Egyptian cubit, the 515 feet. Uh, as in the biblical record, uh, there were the scans that show the different deck layers, potentially the three different decks of the ship Mm -hmm. that were done. There's the signs of metal on the formation. And then there's the GPR, which shows the shape continues under the ground. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this two-part interview with Andrew Jones of Discovered Media. Please look in the show description for links to several incredible videos related to the boat shape formation, along with links to several websites related to the findings. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review along with any favorable comments you have. As the show grows, so too does our financial needs. Please consider helping today by clicking on the ACAST supporter link or by becoming an official patron of the show. Check out our Facebook page to leave comments or questions, or on Twitter at Casey Knowlton. You can also email me at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening in today. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to This Late Hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.